Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. Research, reporting, industry analysis, information, and tokenomics. Welcome to Thriller Insights. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world, gather around. It's time for another exciting episode of Thriller Insights. Today is July 9th, 2021, and we are talking the U.S. debt ceiling default is incoming and whether you should be buying Bitcoin right now. I think you should if you haven't been already, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> we're, we're coming up on something that is um, pretty historic. And it's not historic because it's happened repeatedly, uh, it seems, uh, in the past, what, five years? No, it's historic because it keeps happening and we, the people, keep putting up with it. That's why it's historic. It's definitely happened during the Obama administration. It's happened during the Trump administration. Now it's happening during the Biden administration. It seems to keep happening. And why is that? Why do we keep coming to this point where government shutdowns are a real possibility? The upcoming vote by Congress to either raise or suspend the debt ceiling is becoming the latest political minefield that our political, <laughs> I don't even want to call them leaders at this point. <laughs> they're, they're failures at, at, leader, at leading, quite frankly. But they're discussing what they're going to do about the nation's debt. And this is not unprecedented. This is, this is the unlikely outcome of what happens when you keep printing money and you keep giving it to the very few and it doesn't go to the very many. <laughs> this is what happens when you, when you create this fiat currency society, right? So we are basically coming up to the end of this month. And that is when the chaos will begin. <laughs> and I'm not joking. This is a real thing. Janet Yellen went in front of Congress and basically said, hey, we need to raise the debt ceiling. We need to create more debt. And if we don't do that, we could see the entire structure of our society here in America collapse. I mean, the balls on this woman, right? <laughs> the gigantic golden balls on this woman. I mean, she's from UC Berkeley. That's where she got her, you know, that's where she got indoctrined. <laughs> but in reality, she understands that she's just a wolf in sheep's clothing, doing the bidding of these central bankers and the Federal Reserve and these elite people that rule as a ruling class. Take a listen to our presentation of how herself, Janet Yellen, and the ruling class rob the people blind.
it's, it's easy enough to explain why the wealthy might like neoclassical economics as a defense of a highly imbalanced system, as you've given that analogy for. But it's why economists themselves in love with that. Most of them, and I must say, this, this is from meeting thousands of economists over my life, most of them actually believe they're doing good and most want to do good. And they think they're doing good by making the real world look more like their economic textbooks. Now, they don't realize they're behaving like zealots uh, and they have a false vision of how the economy operates. They, they, they gloss over those bits because the overall picture is so beautiful to them. But the trouble is it's like one of those diamonds where if you, if you tap it on a particular point, the whole diamond shatters. And neoclassical economics is full of those floor points. So if any, any particular thing is acknowledged, like for example, that money matters, as soon as you acknowledge that, the rest of the edifice falls over. If you acknowledge that uh, income, that the income distribution affects aggregate demand, it falls over. So there's so many ways that that fragility, uh, combined with the, what they see as the beauty of the diamond before you shatter it, that's what they hang on to, and they're basically religious sellers. Uh, the debt ceiling is currently suspended until July 31st. Um, just end of next month. Uh, after that point, uh, the Treasury Department can prevent a default for a brief period of time with its so-called extraordinary measures, but Congress uh, must ultimately raise the debt ceiling to prevent a default of the full faith and credit of the United States. Uh, there are murmurings that some members of the Senate uh, may want to try to use this as a political cudgel uh, to extract concessions on other things. Could you speak briefly to the consequences of a default on our national debt or even creating uncertainty uh, around whether or not we're going to make good on our full faith and credit? I, I think defaulting on the national debt should be regarded as unthinkable. Failing to increase the debt limit would have absolutely catastrophic economic consequences. Um, it, it would be utterly unprecedented in American history for the United States government to default on its legal obligations. Um, I believe it would precipitate a financial crisis. It would threaten the jobs and savings of Americans. Um, and at a time when we're still uh, recovering from the COVID pandemic. I would plead with Congress simply to protect the full faith and credit of the United States by acting to raise or suspend the debt limit as soon as possible. Preferably, you mentioned July 31st is the date that the um, debt limit suspension ends and I would really urge that the, um, the debt limit be raised or suspended again before that. And, you know, this is not about authorizing additional spending. This is simply about the government paying its bills, um, making good on the payments that are implied by the um, tax and spending decisions that Congress has made. I appreciate your underscoring that very important point. This is about paying the bills that are already due and owing. Do you have an estimate as to how long use of the emergency measures would, would last us uh, in this current economic environment? 
Well, we're constantly trying to refine our notions on that. I don't have anything specific, but you know, these are times, especially because of the pandemic and the programs that we're engaging in, when there is a lot of uncertainty around payment flows and the timing of payment flows. And, um, you know, we don't want to just look at what is the most likely time that um, we could make it to with extraordinary measures. We can't tolerate any chance of defaulting on the government debt, and there is a lot of uncertainty. It's possible that we could reach that point um, while Congress is um, out, in, out in August, and I would really urge prompt action on raising, raising the limit or suspending it. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. And the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. What does it mean for you? What is called devaluation? If you want to buy a foreign car or take a trip abroad, market conditions may cause your dollar to buy slightly less. But if you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans, who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. Some of the things that happened in the in say the capital uh, of the U.S. this earlier this year were, were previously thought unthinkable, and they still happen. So, you know, investors have to watch out for these kind of you know uh, kind of uh, uh, tail risks that can happen. But in general, I mean, since the debt ceiling 
uh, was implemented uh, in the early 20th century, it's been raised something like a hundred times, uh, and so mm-hmm. uh, by you know by both parties, and it's just you know it's it's historically been mostly a non-politicized event, but every it's, in certain periods of time, it, it starts to be used as a tool, uh, and so the, you know the the way the debt ceiling works is I mean you're not you're not raising the debt ceiling for for new debt, you're raising it to basically pay uh, existing obligations that they've already signed into law, right? So it's not about new spending. It's about maintaining ongoing spending that they've already uh, allocated. So it's different than, say, a fiscal stimulus bill or something like that. Uh, and so in some ways, it's philosophically counterintuitive to fight over the debt ceiling because, you know, they already obligated that spending. Uh, but on the other hand, they use it as a practical tool to try to get something, uh, you know, from, from the administration when, uh, you know, because it's basically a strong bargaining chip. It's kind of like playing chicken. Uh, and so, but when the, when the government became above a certain size, that became untenable. Uh, and so instead, they started to batch it together, and they said, "Okay, instead of approving every single one, we're going to raise. You know, we're going to allow a certain amount of additional debt to be issued by the treasury." Uh, and so they would just kind of raise that every, uh, you know, period of time when that was reached. So it's basically a way that Congress can still have some degree of control over debt issuance, uh, but simplify the process. Uh, and so, you know, nine times out of ten, it's not really a political event, uh, but every kind of tenth time or so, uh, that's when they can mm-hmm. use it for for more political gain. What would be the immediate consequence? It means, of course, the Treasury can't borrow more funds to cover their existing debt obligations, which means they would have to default on some some of their existing uh, uh, payment obligations, right? Well, so they have a couple levers to pull it first. So they still have uh, a cash at their um, uh, account with the Fed, so the Treasury General yeah. account. They can draw that down. Uh, they also, you know, they, they've been in this situation before where the debt ceiling was not raised, uh, and they, they basically have a, a you know some weeks or some months of juggling books around. They call it extraordinarily measures uh, to try to basically avoid some of the the more tangible effects. And so they can do things like uh, draw from the the G fund of the the uh, uh, the, the federal um, uh, retirement system that consists of treasuries, kind of unique treasuries. Uh, they mm-hmm. can uh, you know basically they can do eventually do a government shutdown where they reduce payments that are going out uh, to different things. And that you know that gets paid back afterward, at least part of it. The federal salaries get paid back. The contractors generally not. But basically, they have a couple levers they can start pulling uh, before they get to more serious things like Social Security checks not going out or Treasury coupon payments failing to deliver. Decades past, there was some minor technical issue where a couple coupon payments were delayed, but those were not due to a debt ceiling issue. It was kind of a technical issue, so it's never really happened. Uh, from a debt ceiling problem. So again, the debt ceiling is about uh, you know funding that's already been allocated. And so the you know the kind of the real question has to be directed to: Can we afford further stimulus? Can we afford these kind of structural budget deficits that we have? And so those are kind of two separate debates because one is about kind of fixing forward um, you know, spending patterns, and the other one is about paying for previously allocated funding patterns. But going to the bulk of the question, the short answer is no. Basically, at 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 thirty trillion in debt, five percent interest rates, as you pointed out, that would be one. $0.5 trillion in interest payments, uh, which is a very large percentage of, of both GDP and specifically of, of government revenues and government spending. Uh, now, there's a couple of nuances there because that refers to the, the average of debt outstanding. And so that yes. would include from the federal government, that would include short-term like T-bills as well as that longer-term debt. And so that would depend on, on you know basically some of those long-term low interest rates have already been locked in. Uh, but there is a very, very large percentage of the treasuries that actually consists of, of short-term T-bills. Last I checked, I mean, well over $10 trillion, uh, was that very short-term number. And so that basically is tied to the, the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy. And so uh, the short edge is my, my base case for a couple of years now is that, you know, 
this looks a lot like the 1940s in the sense that that's the last time that U.S. debt to GDP was as high as it is now. Uh, and basically what, what they had to do back then was lock interest rates at a very, very low level, even when you had these bursts of inflation. Uh, and that's because they, you know, they, they found themselves basically fiscally uh, in a problematic space. And so the downside there is that if you're holding cash or holding bonds, uh, you can fail to, to recoup your purchasing power uh, during that period. And so that's actually one of the big differences between the 70s and the 40s is that the 1970s, private and federal debt as a percentage of GDP were both pretty low. And so when you had inflation, you could raise interest rates to combat it. Whereas in the 40s, when you had very, very high uh, public debts, despite inflation, pretty much whatever you do, they couldn't raise interest rates. And so that's generally a pretty good case for holding real assets at this current time, because you know, I think we're still on a path towards uh, currency devaluation. And it could happen in bursts, or it can happen just over the course of a decade of having interest rates that are below the inflation rate. Okay. So let's first talk about the tools they have to control this problem. You mentioned locking in interest rates as one of them. What, what does that mean exactly? How can the uh, government lock in interest rates? Well, for example, if the government issues a 30-year bond at, say, 2.5%, yeah. uh, then it, you know, even if interest rates go back up, that bond, you know, they still have a fixed uh, contract of coupons to pay at that initial rate. Uh, okay. And so basically the extent they lock in that, that longer term yield, uh, they basically buffer themselves against raise, rates going up. However, you know, in recent uh, period of time, they've actually been kind of decreasing their average maturity. They've been issuing a lot of T-bills. And so that, that the, a very big chunk of that debt is susceptible to uh, uh, an increase right. in interest rates if the Fed were to do that. Is there a number in your mind, Lynn, where interest expenses become unsustainable, unaffordable, What's that number for you? Well, once once you would see kind of average treasuries getting up to maybe three percent or so, uh, that'd be that'd become pretty fiscally kind of impossible. And I would actually already say at that point, at you know where we are now with with both the United States and as as well as some other developed countries, debt as a percentage of GDP pretty much almost mathematically can't be can't be uh, kind of serviced in real terms. Meaning that you know we're in an environment where most paths kind of point towards currency devaluation. Uh, and uh -huh. so that could take the form of, say, interest rates being 3% while inflation is 6%, or it could take the form of interest rates being 1% while inflation is 3 or 4%. And so there's, there's a couple different kind of ways that could look like, uh, but they all involve pretty much having these persistent periods of negative real yields, which is, again, okay. that's, that's a problem for pensioners, uh, uh, you know, challenging environment for banks, uh, and you know, just challenging for any saver or bondholder. Mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan, China. A new type of coronavirus. The number of affected countries has tripled. The World Health Organization has just declared that this is a pandemic. I think it, uh, it throws into, into sharp relief the whole idea about saving for the future. Uh, because when you talk about saving for the future for you and me, it's whacking away little pieces of paper in a bank account. Uh, what actually matters for saving for an economy in the future is building infrastructure you'll need at some time in the future. Now, the, uh, the whole obsession with austerity that Cameron was responsible for, saving for a rainy day, well, there you are, the rain's falling and you guys haven't got a roof because you decided it was too expensive to fix it. Uh, and so it's appalling how, how run down the infrastructure, particularly the health infrastructure, is of the UK uh, because, as we know, it was the country that gave us the idea of universal health care in the very first instance. 
honestly, the whole idea that you're prepared for it, uh, what is going to happen after it, of course, is a massive need to focus on rebuilding the excess capacity that was never built into the system in the first place. It used to exist back in the days when NHS was first formed. Pairing it down and focusing on efficiency means it completely lacked resilience and robustness. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to economics. Economic theory, I mean, most of your... your uh, politicians are victims of a degree in uh, philosophy, politics and economics where they get one or two years of economics if they're unlucky. And in that, they learn as the supply and demand analysis of the market system. And that whole idea that, you know, if you, you can describe an economy as a pair of intersecting lines uh, where any deviation from the point of intersection will make you worse off, that has a system with no government to it. So quite automatically, and anti-government because government's what displaces you from the point where the two lines intersect, and that, of course, is a nirvana. Uh, now, that sort of background, intellectual background, they're in no position to actually work out what the role of the state should be in the first place, and then they're undermining the viability of capitalism by trying to enhance it. I think the, great, the great reset is a TLA, which stands for a three-letter acronym, which seems to be very popular in political circles. Uh, what was the other one? Um, stay, the, the three slogans for um, save lives, save the NHS, blah, blah, blah. It's substituting spin for substance. I, I, the people who are saying the great reset are the ones who actually run down the facilities of the country in the last decade, decade and a half. So I, I wouldn't expect a great reset unless you had a great political reset and got rid of them. And there's no sign of that happening whatsoever. I mean, by the looks of it, Labor Party is, you've got Labor Party now, which is Tory light. And uh, the, there's really no change in the political or economic philosophy. And until that occurs, there won't be a great reset. There'll just be a great advertising slogan, otherwise known as gas. Probably wondering, what can you do? What can you possibly do as an American citizen, you know, that's just trying to go to work every day, trying to take care of his family, trying to live a normal life under these circumstances? 
Why do these people keep fucking with that? Right? I think the only thing you can do is buy Bitcoin. Opt out of this fiat currency regime that they've created. This mess that they've created. Of course, today you have Janet Yellen here at the G20 making progress, she says. Tackling critical global challenges like climate crisis and ending the pandemic. And all they're doing is coordinating this effort to control the spigot to the money supply, right? And make sure that these countries get in line with these corporations when it comes to an ESG rating and turning that spigot on and off, whether they agree with that rating. Actually, it's not even agree. It's whether they approve, <laughs> right? Uh, they need to hit their carbon emissions <laughs> goal. And uh, that's going to be a turn for the worse here in the coming year. Yeah, check out the Green Swan Conference. We covered a lot of that there. It's about two and a half, three hours. Uh, it's an opus of an episode. But now it's time to talk Bitcoin because that is what this episode really means. Bitcoin. Because if they're going to raise the debt ceiling, there is consequences to that. There is consequences to everything that they do when it comes to printing more fiat. And Bitcoin is here to end them. Let's jump into coin analysis. Bitcoin. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I've gotten so, you know, I would say this, this year, especially I've gotten so desensitized to price, um, when it comes to Bitcoin, um, that I really don't even look at the price anymore. And I know that sounds so, <laughs> so like, you know, total Bitcoin maxi, but it's true. I, I really don't think in fiat currency only when I pay my bills. Uh, and I'm not bullshitting you, telling you the truth. So uh, this is just for people who want to know, um, you know, where this where where Bitcoin is headed. Right. Because there's a lot of people who are like, you know, who are new, who listen to this podcast, who, who really don't understand like what Bitcoin's doing and understand the charts. And, and you know, I feel like, you know, explaining this stuff can can help them with easing their worries, uh, if that makes sense. Um, I look at it like, hey, young squire, <laughs> everything's going to be OK. Um, <laughs> so that, that's what this is for. Um, clearly just for that. Um, quite frankly, I, I just, I just stack sats and don't think of anything else. And, uh, that's what I do. And I'm sure a lot of you do that as well too. So, um, really just try to get as many sats as you can 
And, and that's all you can possibly do because this, this is going to be crazy what is going to be happening here pretty soon. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're looking at a trading shot chart. Quite frankly, I love trading shot. I think he's one of the best chartists, Bitcoin chartists in the biz, right? In the industry. I think he's, he's, he's up there. He's usually right like 92% of the time. Uh, you know, we give him an 8%, <laughs> you know, there's an 8% chance he's usually wrong, but you know, it's very rare that he is, he's very wrong, right? He's usually somewhere in the ballpark. And that's why I like looking at trading shot and his charts. You can find him on trading view. We'll put a link here in the show notes. If you're subscribed, um, subscribe, it's free. doesn't cost you anything. We're on a donation model. So donate if you can, if not, then, then don't. Here we go. So what we're what we're looking at is typically what we've been talking about all year, right? We've been saying that we're going to have this double top and we've, we've called that since about, I don't know what it was, maybe like mid-January, uh, somewhere around there, late January. I forget, I forget where it was. I'd have to go back and look, but I'm sure y'all know if you've been listening to the, to the show. So I think we're right in line with that. And it's kind of funny how this whole debt ceiling is coming up now, right at the end of July, it falls in line perfectly with what Bitcoin usually does, you know, and we had been saying that June and July, were going to be bearish months, right? Uh, if you look at our 57% uh, uh, Bitcoin theory, it clearly shows that Bitcoin goes down uh, during the summer. And, and we had been saying since the beginning of the year that June and July were going to be bearish months, uh, right? I think we were like the only people that had been saying that the entire time. And I'm not trying to be one of those people that say, oh, I'm right or whatever. I don't give a shit about that. It's just the truth, right? Go back and listen to our old episodes. It's just the truth. I'm just speaking truths here. So June and July are going to be bearish months. We kind of already knew that. But what's interesting is that August, if you look at our 57% Bitcoin theory, we have that at 83, I think it's like 83K. It's in the 80s for sure. And when I saw that coming up, I was like, there's no fucking way <laughs> we're going to get to 83K uh, by August. There's just no way. There's no way. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take us, it's going to take something, you know, historic to happen for us to get to 83K. I think what they're doing right now is that historic thing that's about to happen. And that's what we talked about here at the top of the episode. I'm just saying, ladies and gentlemen, if there was ever a reason for us to go up a considerable amount in a very short amount of time, um, 83K is a very you know high bar to set. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that's a very high bar to set. You have to realize, though, we were just at 68K. <laughs> so, uh, you know, getting to another 12K on top of that really isn't asking a lot. In one month, yes, for sure. <laughs> Definitely for sure. But, you know, we made that theory, I want to say uh, early 2020. Uh, and it's held up every single month that we've that we've uh, forecasted. So August is going to be that critical month. If we hit 83K in August, well, then call me <laughs> fucking Rain Man from, you know, call me Dustin Hoffman from Rain Man. 
right? Because I'm fucking, you know, might as well call me a time traveler because I'm calling shit, right? That's just crazy, 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 crazy that that math formula that we used actually worked. Um, Anyways, we'll see with that. I'm looking forward to August. I can't wait to see what happens. With all that said, let me kind of give you what I really think is going to happen here. Um, so March 14th and March 15th are days to watch. And, and the reason for that is that this will be decision time for Bitcoin. We've basically been in this accumulation period for a really long time, right? Most of the summer. Um, and do not be surprised if, if we break or drop, you know, here around those dates. And the reason I say that is it's going to be very crucial that we hold a 29, 30K, 30K support line. And it shows that here inside Trading Shots chart. That's why when I look at his, I'm just like, dude, we're like thinking the same thing. We're, we're clearly looking at the same thing. We're thinking the same way. Uh, and I swear I'm not trading shot. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like 29, 30K, if we hold that support line, then we can easily break above 40K, you know, in, in that 14th, 15th, 16th um, date, right? And as we get closer to that debt ceiling uh, date that they're going to be arguing for, because they're going to raise it, um, it that's just, that's just going to happen, you know? It's not like they're going to, you know, shut down the government. I mean, they might, but I just seriously doubt it. They're going to raise it, right? Or who knows what's going to happen. When that happens, when they do raise it, because it's going to get raised, trillions of dollars are going to be uh, <laughs> are going to be are going to be created. The, the the Democrats are going to start throwing in all sorts of shit inside whatever bill they'll be doing, uh, all all sorts of uh, pork and fat and whatever media terms that they use <laughs> to describe uh, free money for for the elite uh, will get thrown in there. And all this leads to is mass uh, accumulation into Bitcoin, because what people see, what I will see, what the vast majority of you already see, what uh, what a lot of people in the regular (laughs) everyday life will see is like, oh, shit, they're printing more money. What does this mean? Higher wages? No, (laughs) not higher wages. This means uh your dollar is getting devalued and this forces you to start buying Bitcoin because that's going to hold your value over time. And when they start seeing the price of Bitcoin go up, then they will slowly remember like, oh, this is what Bitcoin is for. This is why I need to buy it. And then that, that, that slow kind of realization will happen. Another thing you have to realize is we have to coincide with El Salvador. So they're going to be airdropping a lot of Bitcoin here in, in, in late August, early September, I believe. And when that happens, you're going to see a lot of Bitcoin enter the Lightning Network. It's already starting. And that's going to be another push for Bitcoin. So what I'm trying to say, ladies and gentlemen, is August is going to be a very bullish month for Bitcoin, just in general. I'd be very shocked... I'd be very shocked to see August be a bearish month for Bitcoin. Now, let me give you the scenario where it tanks. Yes, we could we could go 
theoretically. We could go down from this, you know, 14th, 15th of July. We could fall all the way back down to this, you know, 23, 20K range, somewhere around there, and then pop right back up because that's what we'll do, right? We could pop right back up. But it, it all leads us going right through 35K. 35K is that is that line that we need to break through. And once we break through 35K, we're going right above 40. And then that's a quick run of 50 with no resistance. <laughs> it's freaking awesome. No resistance to 50, right? And then at that point, it's just, it's just recovering old ground that we've already been to, right? That's getting above 60. We've already been there. And then it's making that quick jump to 80. Can we get there in a month, two months? I definitely think we can be there by, by, uh, by October. So what I'm trying to say is start buying Bitcoin if you haven't already. If you've literally just been like taking a break because you're uncertain where Bitcoin is headed. Uh, well, I'm telling you, come August, Bitcoin is going to start going up. And the reason being is these so-called <laughs> these these things that I like to call kind of um, they're, they're, they're reasons that give the market reasons to buy, right? They go, it's, it's weird how like the longer you stay in the space, the more you realize you have to take a 360 approach when it comes to trading Bitcoin and all that stuff. I don't think you should trade your Bitcoin. You do you, whatever. I, I don't, I just snack sats. But the more you stay in the space, the more you kind of see the industry, you know, trends and how everything kind of rolls. And, you know, and what I've always noticed is you, you follow these charts, you follow these charts, and then you start seeing these key dates that are coming up ahead two, three weeks from now. And you start seeing, OK, these are the resistance line. This is where we're sitting. This is where we're going. This is what's happening at this end of the day. Does this does this does this, you know, small little catalyst have a chance to make this wider sea change? And I think. I think this debt ceiling has the opportunity to make this a bigger thing unless it's already priced in. I just don't see that as being priced in because no one's really talking about it. Right. No one's talking about the debt ceiling right now. It's not it's not being discussed in the Bitcoin space. Uh, as soon as I release this, maybe people will start talking about it. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but I think Lynn Alden's the only person that's kind of uh, expressed it. She's kind of making the rounds. So we'll see. But that's kind of my opinion on where everything's headed. So if you were kind of worried like, oh, what's going on here? What's going on here? It's just a, not a lot was going on. A lot of sideways action, right? So there's really nothing to report. But when there's finally something to report, we'll report it. <laughs> and guess what? Now there's finally something to report. That's what I'm telling you ahead of time. Hey, 14th, 15th, look out for these dates. This is where we're going to start seeing a break either on the upside or the downside. I think it's going to be on the upside. And then if we break above 35K, quick jump to 40, easy run to 50, quite frankly. Then we're above 50. And then it's just, and then it's just recovering old ground to 60. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to see what, what the rest of this month looks like on the second half of it. That's going to be interesting. And then also what's going to happen here in August. August is going to be so critical. If we're still at 35K in August, not good, not bueno, because yeah, it's just not good. We'll have to look at it then. Uh, there will have to be something else going on that is causing that to happen. 
right? And uh, I, I don't believe this whole Chinese minor bullshit. I mean, yes, that takes that that takes into account, but I just don't believe that Chinese minor bullshit that's being propagated out there. Quite frankly, it's fun. Okay, with that, let's get into future predictions. So today in Future Predictions, we're actually looking at a CBDC. <laughs> and you're probably wondering, like, what the fuck car the fuck are you talking about? I'm serious. We're looking at CBDCs, but it's not in the scenario that you think. It's in the scenario that you haven't thought of. And this is coming from Mike on the lamb. He is a uh, Bitcoin Twitter personality, and uh, he released some really interesting shit, uh, quite frankly, uh, I'm just going to read it to you because it's 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 fascinating as hell. When I read this, uh, I just gave him a round of applause and I was just like, like, holy shit. You know, it's uh, it's it, it's just crazy. So I want you to get in this kind of mindset right now of like thinking of the future and kind of, you know, just understanding like what this future world can look like a scenario a dollar won't hyperinflate when financial entities have enough assets a cyber attack will hit the banks you will not be able to access your money the fed will offer central bank digital currencies at one-tenth the value of the money in your bank account you will now have surveillance wallet but you will ask what about the FDIC? The Fed will say, we'll give you 1% of your money or $500 in CBDCs. It will not be enough to pay your house. The Fed, through an agent, will bail your mortgage out. You will not be allowed to keep certain things in the house. It's a rental now. The central bank digital currency that they gave you will not be enough to buy your house back. But that's okay since they have reduced the payment for you. Remember your money? $500 a month doesn't sound like much, but prices for everything have dropped. Since the total supply of money has contracted, you're able to buy basic food stuff, enough for everybody in the house. You can afford your rent. While you own nothing, you're happy because you're still eating. Money is now less of a concern for you. Your job, which amounts to filling out spreadsheets on a computer from home, is mind-numbing, but stable. You get free tickets to the Giants. That's cool. Free hot dogs and Cokes. Is that still a thing? As you live your little life on your CBDCs, you hear rumors that there were new communities springing up in the South and the West. They don't use CBDCs. There's a news story about how the government is looking into corrective actions, but nothing has happened. Is it propaganda? Is it more fake news? It's spreading. 
States like Texas and Florida are regularly portrayed in the official news as places that don't care about people. Everyone is still on their own when it comes to money, housing, jobs. Who wouldn't want to live there? Except you saw a picture and it looks nice. Then you hear about the guns, the viruses, and think twice. You're now used to your life, though you're disconnected. Then one day a story gets through the usual mundane reports. People in Texas are buying up all the stuff. The report doesn't really say what, but one question sticks to your mind. How are they able to buy anything? Then you remember 20 years ago when they were talking about making Texas a Bitcoin mining mecca. Could it be? There's no way to know, but you sure want to find out. What if? What if, what if it was all Bitcoin? Yeah, it truly was a magnificent thread from Mike on the Lamb. When I read that on Twitter, I just couldn't believe like <laughs> this kind of read out like some kind of like futuristic, uh, just like novel. And then lo and behold, it actually there is a novel called The Mandibles. Uh, it's called The Mandibles, A Family from 2029 to 2047. And it goes really in depth and it's... Um, it, it, it kind of talks about this, um, but it doesn't really go into like this whole like Bitcoin thing or anything like that. Uh, but it talks about this new global currency called the Bangor, and it follows this family as they uh, deal with the aftershocks of a devastating uh, sovereign debt default um, that happens in America. Um, I'm definitely going to check out that book for sure. Uh, and then one other thing I want to mention is... There's a lot of talk, and this article came out this evening uh, right before I was going to release this episode. So I just want to mention it here, and I'll put a link here in the uh, in the show notes, uh, or actually in the newsletter. So you have to go to the newsletter and subscribe at thrillerpremium.com. But um, if you go to the the link here at, at the newsletter, it's, uh, it's by Zero Hedge, and it's called, What If the Next Major Cyber Attack Targeted the Internet? And read this article. It's probably one of the most important articles I've read this summer. Um, and it talks about how there is, there looks like there's going to be some type of like cyber polygon simulation. And it's talking about how the next cyber attack would be a cyber pandemic. Uh, and it's basically how they're preparing what looks like a planned internet outage event. Um, so basically that the web is going to go dark, um, and how, how, how they're kind of shaping this. And this is all coming from the world economic forum, <laughs> the same people that brought you COVID. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, read the article. It goes really in depth. Um, I just barely got wind of this here, right late into this episode. So that's why I'm just bringing it up now, but yeah, it's, pretty alarming um I, I would imagine that they're probably going to get like pulled from twitter or something uh, i've already saved it in my pocket um just because it's it's really it's really informative and they, they just talk a lot about how you know 
what we're seeing here from the WEF and, and from a lot of these, you know, big conglomerates is that they're planning this stuff out in the open and they're not even like trying to hide this shit anymore. Um, it's really sad, right? Um, so just read the article, head over to thrillerpremium.com, click the link or just go straight to zerohedge.com and read that article. Uh, it's called what if the next major cyber attack targeted the internet and uh, they're already starting simulations on this it's nuts okay So this year, or I should say this season, what we're going to try to do is really focus in on creating a more detail-oriented podcast. And what I mean by that is really focusing in on a subject and try to create a cohesive, more streamlined episode, if that makes sense. We're really trying to step up our game when it comes to um, you know, publishing this stuff and really trying to set our bar even higher uh, every episode. So just be patient with us as we uh, roll these things out because it's gonna take us even more time between episodes to make sure like the production quality is up to standard. Um, we're working on an episode right now that is centered around Elon Musk and his uh, cobalt mining camps. Um, it's really, really sad. There's a lot of stuff that we've already found out that's just crazy. As you know, he's a person that completely attacks Bitcoin for no reason. And we as defenders of Bitcoin feel it's our purpose to not only expose all his hidden secrets and these child mining camps, but to bring out this darkness and bring it to light. 